Good morning. Good morning, folks online. Nice to see you. Good morning, everyone in the Zendo. It's a beautiful sunny day. <clears throat> we have some snow at last. Really nice covering of snow. And uh, someone has turned, I have no idea who, has turned the backyard into kind of a snow sculpture, kind of a Zen garden. It's really beautiful. <laughs> Reminds me of... Uh, of contours on a farm, a farm field. So uh, my last Dharma talk, which was I think the first one of this year, uh, I talked about our most uh, intimate relationships, uh, including uh, romantic relationships, and what that means for our practice. <clears throat> and I talked about how this can be one of the most challenging areas uh, to practice in uh, because these really close relationships are so bound up with desire. And since our practice is about the cessation of desire, it almost seems like, well, these relationships are sort of outside of our practice. How do we deal with them? Do we try to end our disaster? <laughs> do we try to end our, um, our desire and end uh, um, make it simple that way? Well, no, we don't. We have to learn how to be really skillful acting in the realm of desire. Uh, these relationships are not outside of our practice. So I use that as an opportunity to talk a little bit more about a gentler approach to practice. And I talked about how in um, some of the very early Buddhism, I quoted the Dhammapada about how we have to sort of make our mind a fortress and not let the bad stuff in. And I talked about a more Mahayana approach, which is to quiet the mind, to be vividly present with whatever's going on, including desire, and um, to practice with everything uh, using discipline and um, a very strong sense of uh, ethics. And so, uh, it's not about escaping the world of desire. It's more about operating uh, skillfully within it. So we bring compassion to our intimate relationships while also, of course, uh, protecting ourselves. We don't allow ourselves to be uh, abused or taken advantage of or something like that. So such relationships are really at the very heart of our practice. And it's a very challenging area of practice. It's a huge area of our life. And so this is a place where we can come up against our edge. We can learn things. We can be uh, examine ourselves very uh, carefully. And so this is a great place for practice. And today I'd like to follow up on that a little bit by talking about family, both the family that we're born into and the family that we may find or choose for ourselves. And that, of course, is another difficult place to practice because it can get uh, so complicated that we can almost feel like it's outside of our practice. You know, we come here to the center and we sit and we face the wall and everything seems kind of clear and kind of simple and we relate to people in this formal way. And then we have our family where everything is just so complicated going back so many years and we just don't know how to bring our practice to it. But it doesn't need to be that way. 
So first, I'd like to talk about the family uh, we're born into. And I talk to so many people about family stuff. I do a lot of doka have a lot of conversations. Uh, we talk about, you know, applying practice to our lives. And um, uh, this just really comes up a lot. And one thing that is so very apparent to me about families is that we are all so very different in our family situations. There is such a great variety of experience there. And uh, this has changed over the years. <clears throat> when I was in um, first grade back in 1960, we had our little reading book. And I remember we had these three characters, Tom, Betty, and Susan, and they had a mom and dad. And that was the nuclear family. And everybody in the book had that same nuclear family. I think everyone in the book was white as well. But it's sort of like, that's kind of the expectation. You have uh, a nuclear family, and if your family's a little different, you're kind of outside of the norm. And of course, our culture has really changed a lot. I think our textbooks are very, very different these days. And we're pretty much uh, past that, which is great. And some folks still have that nuclear family. It's not always a heterosexual couple, but we have single parents, co-parenting. We have single folks, folks with kids, folks without kids, biological kids, adopted kids, stepkids aunties or aunties, if you prefer. Um, and um, kids who are so close to you that, you know, you really feel like they're your own, but there's not an easy definition for that. There's not an easy way to say, well, that's that's my kid or, you know, I'm helping to raise that kid. Um, we have folks who are deeply involved with uh, other sorts of creatures, uh, including uh, pets. Uh, folks who are still very intimately involved with their family of origin, may still live with their family of origin. Folks for whom that has really faded away, you know, when, when uh, you lose your parents, as I have, you sometimes don't see your siblings as much and, and you still love them, but it's just, uh, things just change in that way. We have folks, uh, some folks choose to end contact with their family of origin for one reason or another, sometimes that's best. Uh, my own family is so complicated. Um, I have, I guess I would say I come from a large blended family. I have my, uh, my son uh, Dylan and his two sons. Uh, I have two sets of uh, stepkids. Uh, there are other kids that uh, Kathy and I kind of came into our lives and we helped to raise them. And I have grandchildren as well. And I think it adds up to 14 offspring and some are biological most are not that doesn't really matter and so when people ask the simple question so how many kids do you have every time i make this mental calculation should i give them the long version or the short version should i try to find sort of a quick number and explain it in a conventional way or should i try to convey the reality of it because it's a long story it really is and um, so, and I've discovered it can be kind of difficult and kind of awkward to ask folks about their families. And I want to do this, right? Because you ask people about, uh, about that and you like to talk about it. You like to hear about it. It's really fun. But it's hard to ask without having some kind of assumption built into the question. Like I can say, so do you have kids? 
oh, I'm supposed to have kids? <laughs> or so, uh, do you have a partner? Oh, I'm supposed to have a partner. Or maybe I could say, what's your family situation? That seems kind of awkward, too. <laughs> so I don't know what to say. I've come up with something, but it's not very practical, which is, so tell me about the other beings in your life. <laughs> and that, that seems a little awkward, too. So I'm going to keep working on this. But, but that's what I want to know. I want to know about those other beings. And you can tell me in any order, you know, you're... you're you're born into family or your fallen family uh, or whatever. So, so I have these notes and have I left on a page here? Uh oh, this is like that bad dream you have. <laughs> so, tell me about because this is a really awkward, awkward transition. Bear with me. Good thing we all know a lot about patience. Well, that's okay, yeah. And so, um, oh, I've had such a weekend so far because we had um, a sleepover with uh, three grandchildren, ages uh, uh, three, seven, and nine. And those kids have a lot of energy and it was really, really fun and just wore me out. I feel a little distracted uh, this morning and I just kind of dazed and confused. But it was really good. And um, we just did all of these fun things. The little one, Louie, he's three. And we like to make up our own games. You know, we don't like really sort of games that amuse you. So you're just passive when you're or you're watching a toy do something. You know, we make up our own stuff. So we just make up, uh, we have this little, this little crab here. This is a little green crab. It's kind of a little beanbag crab. And we made up this game where he would be um, sort of beside the basement steps and I would put the crab on the edge of the basement steps like this. And I would push it a little bit and push it a little bit. And he's laying down below, the crab's gonna fall on him but he doesn't know when. He doesn't know when, so I keep pushing it. You don't know when it's gonna fall, do you? You don't? And at that point, he would laugh uproariously. <laughs> and he made me do that 50 times. Because <laughs> if it's fun, funny once, it's funny 50 times. And then we did a variation where we put it on top of an open door, and he closes the door with his foot, and he makes it fall himself. And we did that about 50, things, 50 times. Then he told Kathy about it, and he made her do it. <laughs> And uh, since I kind of lost that page, I don't really know where this story was going. Um, but yeah, so I'm kind of dazed and confused and it was just a really kind of busy and weird, uh, weird couple of days, but I'm so glad I did it, you know, because family is just really uh, important and I make it a really high priority, especially because the two, the two older boys who are now seven and nine, they were falling away from me when they were little. And so I just so value having them here, you know, and I just uh, do what I can to really um, keep up this connection. So, um, yeah, family is great, but regardless of what your family of origin situation is, often there are things that are difficult and contentious with family. Often we have other, you know, adults in our families, our extended families that we have conflicts with. Uh, if this happens to you, you are not alone. I think most people have these situations. Sometimes 
Maybe there's someone in your life who you didn't choose and you don't see eye to eye. And every time you get together, it's kind of hard and there's not much hope for change. And this goes on for decades. This can happen. And it's kind of tough, you know? So how do we practice with this kind of thing? Well, um, I, I talk to people about this kind of thing sometimes. And um, I try to see every situation anew. I don't want to have a formula uh, for addressing this, but I do kind of notice a pattern um, of how I tend to address these things with them. And that is, um, we talk it through. I maybe ask a lot of questions. We try to see it clearly, and we try to see what's really going on. And this is where our practice really helps, because our practice, which involves a lot of quiet time and a lot of rigorous self-examination, uh, helps us to see how our own perspective influences what we see. We see how our own needs and desires and hurts and fears color our own perception. And this will be true of the other person as well. And we can see that. So we can talk this through and maybe we see it really more clearly. And sometimes there's a clear answer. Like, oh, I see what's really going on here and I know what to do. I'm reacting in this way because of my early conditioning. I can set that aside and I can take a new look at this. And often the answer is not so clear. And it's just a really hard thing to do, to deal with. And you hold it. You hold it like a, a coal. But in any case, if we can see it clearly, then we can talk about what to do with compassion for everyone involved, including yourself. That's very important. Uh, with firmness, if it's needed, uh, with an understanding of interconnections. Um, and we try to find a kind of balance. We try to find a balanced approach. <laughs> So we see it clearly, and then we find the middle way. That's our practice. We see it clearly, and we find the middle way. And if you have a real taste for drama, that might seem a little boring. <laughs> um, and it may be, you know, long-term Zen practice can be uh, a little boring. It's like not too much of this, not too much of that, and you keep showing up, and you keep doing the stuff. Um, and I was thinking as I was preparing this talk, somebody should make a statue of a yawning bodhisattva, <laughs> which is kind of ridiculous, right? Because the bodhisattva always shows up and is always deeply engaged in the world and has a lot of energy. And we look at it that way, right? Um, but for some of us more imperfect bodhisattvas, for those of us who are still working on it and feel that, well, I was... Bodhisattva for a while there, and then I dropped it, that dropped away, yeah. back to being, you know, the same guy I always was. Uh, for those of us who are uh, kind of uh, imperfect, uh, we need to understand that Bodhisattva work can be dull and kind of unglamorous, and you just have to stick with it. And that, too, is a sacrifice that the Bodhisattva needs to make to kind of accept the plodding, the plodding nature of it. Uh, but most of us love drama a little bit. I can guarantee with this practice, you will get some of that too, because the, uh, the, the, the rigorous uh, uh, introspection I talked about and the sitting on the cushion and facing the wall and all of that stuff is going to happen there. I guarantee you'll find some, uh, some excitement. 
uh, some drama. And maybe, you know, a little ecstasy too. There are six realms. One is the God realm, and you have to visit that one as well. That's part of the deal. So the family of origin, we bring our practice to it. And some people report that their Zen practice really helps them with that, that they just kind of react in a different way. And it may not be a dramatic or perfect solution, but uh, it really cannot hurt uh, to do this practice. It really cannot hurt your relationships with other people. So then we have uh, found or chosen families, which I think is a pretty happy concept. We gather people around us. Uh, we look for people and we develop relationships and we become close and it becomes steady. And uh, it's not always easy. If you've ever moved to a new city, you know how hard that can be. It can take you a couple of years or longer to feel like you've really kind of settled in now and really kind of found your people. And this has been harder in the past few years with COVID and everything. I mean, we couldn't go out. Um, and uh, still people are working uh, from home a lot. We don't see each other as much. Uh, so many of our interactions are online. And that's really good in some ways. That can really help. But it's kind of a mixed, uh, a mixed blessing, too. But uh, people are out there, and we can find them, and we can develop those relationships. And when I think of chosen family, of course, it's pretty easy for me to think about uh, MZMC, because I think for many of us, there is kind of a family feeling here. And I can't guarantee that everyone is going to find that, um, or that MZMC is going to be right for everyone in terms of their relationships. But for a lot of people, it happens. It takes a while. You have to keep showing up. It deepens and changes over time. Uh, it can be a little bit like a romantic relationship. Uh, in the beginning, after that initial period of awkwardness, you're kind of swept away. You're kind of in awe. And then maybe something happens and there's a bit of a correction because MZMC is like any family. It is an imperfect family. And you realize that and you come back to reality a little bit and then your relationship evolves and it becomes a little more mature or it doesn't and you leave. <laughs> but I hope you'll stick around and work it out here because the next community is going to be like that too. So anyway, there's this beautiful term that relates to the family style of practice. And I've talked about it before. And I'm happy to talk about it again. I haven't talked about it for a while. And it is a Japanese term, menmitsu no kafu. So mitsu in Japanese is intimacy. And men is the word for cotton cloth. So the close weave of cotton has the quality of intimacy. So what a nice image. The sangha is like cloth woven uh, together. And... Um, this part of the talk I'm taking from a talk by Choro Carla Antonaccio from the Chapel Hill Zen Center. And um, she said in her talk, which I found online, uh, Menmitsu, combining intimacy with cotton cloth, is about continuous intimacy, soft and supple, and warm-hearted. Dogen used the phrase Menmitsu no Kafu 
meaning the careful consideration of everything, intimacy with everything, literally the family style. And maybe I'm using this a bit for my own purposes. Maybe this is more about mindfulness and being aware of interconnections in all of our uh, actions. Uh, but I'm using this to talk about community because that's what I'm all about. Um, I think that's why I gravitated toward this job over the years. Um, and of course, Zen practice, my solitary practice on the cushion that I do is the basis for everything I do. Everything springs from that. But it seems like every time I sit down on the cushion and I get up, I'm like, we got to tell other people about this. <laughs> we have got to share this. We have got to uh, uh, teach and we've got to organize. We've got to set up systems. We've got to send some emails. We've got to do this. And that's kind of my default mode is building Sangha. And it's a happy place for me to be. Because my dream, what is my dream? Well, it isn't exactly having a beautiful practice place, although that's important. It isn't exactly having a bigger Sangha, although I'm happy when more people come in and we can share the Dharma with them. It isn't really preserving the forms exactly or altering the forms in a skillful way to fit our current world. That's important stuff too. But my dream is really that everyone has a place, that everyone has a place. And that's kind of subtle, I know. It is the place of no place. This is Zen. And we talk about how there is ultimately no place to land. And our practice is about learning to be comfortable with that. But we can't leave out the other side of practice. We have conventional refuge and we have non-conventional refuge. And we need them both. In order to be okay in that place of no place, we have to have a place. And we can come together and have a place together. And that enables us to do that other thing. And we can live so beautifully uh, in a realm, although there is no realm, where both of those things are present. So form is emptiness, emptiness is form, but form is also form. So these places are important. And here we are. And as I've said to teens, sometimes in the teen groups, we want you to have a place to go. We want you to have a place to go in here, but we want you to have a place to go here too. And it's a real place. So maybe I just can't get enough them. Maybe that's what's going on. It's a little bit like my mother-in-law who um, upon having after upon having 12 children, uh, took in a 13th child because there's not that much difference between 12 and 13, but also because she just had this, you know, infinite capacity for loving people and, uh, and taking them in. So family, whether it's born into or chosen, whether it's created or found, 
human or animal, permanent or fluid, or momentary is pretty important. Pretty important. Because for one thing, life is always, always a combination of joy and tragedy. And we need people there. And in a community, there are always some people who are doing very, very well. People are falling in love. They're having babies. They are deepening their practice. They are finding new ways of being and finding joy, finding new uh, connections. They're just settling in maybe. One day they kind of go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been doing this a while. And there's that thing, that thing that used to be here. And that's kind of, yeah, that thing's not really so prominent anymore. I kind of moved on to this other stuff. And there are always in a community as well, people who are, are not doing so well. You know, there's always uh, transitions in life and things like that. And at my, my home altar, for some reason, I kind of, um, well, I, I kind of took the cards off of my altar for a while that I've been putting there. Um, but I started putting them back up again on January 1st. So if someone is uh, is very ill or having a really hard time or someone has has died, I'll put a card up there. Right now I have 19 cards on my altar, and that's quite a lot. So whenever I sit at home, I'm sitting in the presence of that tragedy. Some of you are on there, and I really wish you the best. Um, so this is always going on, and family helps with that. And I think family, by definition, is something that is always there, and that's why we value it so much. It may not always live up to that promise, it may fail us sometimes, but we all have that ideal in our mind that there's going to be somebody always there for us. And, um, and that, that's, uh, that's nice. Last Sunday, I think I was feeling a little down. I had, you know, I have those 19 cards on my altar and, you know, it's, uh, I, I think of all of the sadness there, but I came to Zen Center and expected a pretty normal day, but then Mark gave his talk, which so many people mentioned was such a beautiful talk, uh, where he talked about uh, 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 his daughter Lucy and how she was born uh, early. And it was just, it was such a beautiful talk, so heartfelt. And we had our new member T, which I did with Alejandro. And we went around the room and everybody talked about Zen Center and they said such sweet and beautiful and, and wonderful things. And so I felt really up from that for, for days. Um, and so to conclude, there's one last thing. <laughs> Here's the missing paper. <laughs> yeah, I covered it all. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even need notes. So there's this article I wanted to tell you about. Uh, my spouse, uh, Kathy, it was a couple of weeks ago. She said, I read this article in the New York Times. You've got to read it. It's so beautiful. And you've got to put it into a Dharma talk. I said, okay, I'll read it. So uh, it's a guest essay. Um, uh, one title is Two Lessons from an Ancient Text That Changed My Life. The other title that it had in a different location was Train Yourself to Always Show Up. 
pretty good title. That really sounds like our Zen practice, doesn't it? Training yourself to always show up. That's what we do. Uh, but it's not from the Zen tradition. It's from the Jewish tradition. And it is written by Sharon Bruce, or maybe it's Brous, B-R-O-U-S. Rabbi Brous is the founding and senior rabbi of ICAR, a Jewish community based in Los Angeles, and the author of The Amen Effect. So she told about this ancient practice, which she says is buried deep within the Mishnah, a Jewish legal compendium from around the third century. And it's about an ancient practice reflecting a deep understanding of the human psyche and spirit. When your heart is broken, when the specter of death visits your family, when you feel lost and alone and inclined to retreat, you show up, you entrust your pain to the community. And so it talks about a pilgrimage ritual that took place in ancient times where people would gather, climb the steps of the Temple Mount and enter its enormous plaza, turning to the right altogether circling counterclockwise. Meanwhile, the brokenhearted, the mourners, and here I would also include the lonely and the sick, would make this same ritual walk, but they would turn to the left and circle in the opposite direction, every step against the current. And each person who encountered someone in pain would look into that person's eyes and inquire, what happened to you? Why does your heart ache? My father died, a person might say. There are so many things I never got to say to him. Or perhaps my partner left. I was completely blindsided. Or my child is sick. We're awaiting the test results. Those who walked from the right would offer a blessing. May the Holy One comfort you, they would say. You are not alone. And then they would continue to walk until the next person approached. And she writes, this timeless wisdom speaks to what it means to be human in a world of pain. This year, you walk the path of the anguished. Perhaps next year, it will be me. Hold, I hold your broken heart, knowing that one day you will hold mine. And so she read in this, the profound lesson, do not take your broken heart and go home. Don't isolate, step forward, toward those whom you know will hold you tenderly. And I think that's beautiful. And I say, I say, do that. You know, don't hesitate to tell us if you've had a tragedy. You know, tell someone here at Zen Center, tell me or another teacher or uh, tell your friends. Sometimes people say, I don't, they say to me, I don't want to burden you with my problems. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's my job. And it is not a burden. I want you to do that. I want you to share things with me so that we can be a whole community. You know, you're, if you keep it to yourself, you're not helping the community. You're kind of hurting the community a little bit because the community needs the opportunity to bring you along. So, yeah, tell someone. We, we can talk. We can listen. We can do a little service. And then she says, on your good days, the days when you can breathe, show up then, too. Because the very fact of seeing those who are walking against the current, people who can barely hold on, 
and asking with an open heart, tell me about your sorrow, may be the deepest affirmation of our humanity, even in terribly inhumane times. So I'm ending with that. And um, we have some time left. So I would really love to hear uh, from some of you. So if you're online, you can raise your hand and I'll call on you or um, you can just start speaking. If you're in the room, uh, you can raise your hand. And Alejandro. And then Judy, were you about to speak? Yes. Let's do Alejandro and then Judy. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate your insight and everything that you bring because in my journey is more challenges. When I talk about the you non-judgment, know, I'm still kind of learning from the good side. Still, when you talk about it, it really it hardened me of my heart. And that is the fact that you talk about desire and how we're supposed to kind of diminish kind of food. And then you said something there too that I was going to ask, but you gave the answer about approaching desire with, with the skill and giving them in a healthy way. How do we define desire? Is it the cycle of desire, is it desire for money? Or is my desire to be enlightened? Is my desire to be from Buddha? So I approach that one with very carefully and have a possession after that of mine because it is intriguing to see how in the way that I see desire is not good, but my enlightenment is a desire mm -hmm. to become Buddha. To um, if I choose to be the Bodhisattva that is going to start my journey to enlightenment but help others, um, that's a desire also. So I was found a little with that one, and like always oh, a beautiful challenge, probably for me to you and I to talk a little bit there too. But I just wanted to drop that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we can talk. We can talk more about that uh, uh, privately. But yeah, you. So you mentioned several types of of desire. Um, you know, desire for money or fame or or love or even enlightenment. That is a kind of desire too. And it's 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 true. And it's always important to recognize what is coming from desire because we can just sort of be trapped on that hamster wheel of desire and cessation of desire. And until we learn that getting off the wheel is the solution, we're just going to keep spinning. Um, but talking about desire today in connection with this talk, um, I didn't really define it, but I think I'm talking about mostly, it's about getting our own needs fulfilled um, because, you know, our needs for love. And that happens in intimate relationships. I mean, that's like the definition of an intimate relationship. So it is not a bad thing. And that's the situation with family too. I mean, we love our family. We depend on our family to give us stuff. And that is not a bad, a bad thing. But seeing all of that clearly is something that can really help us. Thank you. And Judy. Thank you, Ted. That particularly, you know, this whole talk about um, that you gave today kind of um, is is such a, a wide-ranging discussion of Sangha. Um, and particularly the last part, because I realized that very thing is a big barrier for me for becoming part of a community. 
because I don't, I don't want to talk about um, what troubles me. You know, if I'm going to be part of a community, I want to figure out, oh, how can I contribute? Um, But then I miss the opportunity for people to support or know me. And um, just, just talking about it this morning really had a really profound effect on me. Like um, it's happening in other areas of my life too, where um, I am seem to always just want to be the contributing one or the strong one and not acknowledging the part of myself that needs um, acceptance, care, um, even to express pain and discomfort um, and um, confusion. Um, uh, somehow, somehow I'm, my constitution is preventing me from being available to community in this way. So you're talking about this this morning is just a real helpful thing for me to, to think about. And also kind of a permission um, that uh, I don't allow myself. So could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's really uh, beautifully said. And, you know, I think this goes uh, two ways. This is a good reminder for me that it is not easy for everyone to share their own pain. It may be very, very difficult, and I need to be understanding about that and, uh, and, and, and very kind and very patient and not too demanding. Yet I would still like to keep giving these nudges because the other side of that <laughs> is that generally it is a good thing to share that, and it's, it's, very, it's very hard. And here in the West, you know, we tend to value being independent and self-sufficient very much and it's not always so easy to reach out to communities so i think if we can examine that edge where we come up against our hesitancy to share these things with others i think it can be a good thing and i'm not saying you absolutely have to become someone who shares all of this stuff uh but being aware of uh in the way you just talked about it judy coming coming to that awareness, oh, like, what is my hesitancy here, is probably an important part of the introspection that I've been talking about this morning. That, okay. Thank you, Judy. And uh, Katie. Um, your talk is making me think about sort of the, the, the community we often find ourselves in, which is our coworkers, and how often that feels like family. But sometimes we start to feel like our coworkers as family, but then they make a decision that benefits the business, but not you personally. And and then there's that question of, well, are they family? I thought they were family, but they're not family. So I, I think that's an interesting place to sort of play with that concept of how much to give to your community and how much to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Ginny, and then Leslie. Um, I'll just share a brief, I'll try to be brief about this experience that I had. I'm thinking of both as a result of what Judy said and Katie, and I was thinking about it too, Ted being able to talk about kind of being able to be vulnerable and share um, your heartache with your community. I had an experience in 2016 at work um, where I was, it was at the end of the year, I 
I was getting divorced. I had just moved out of my home into a new apartment. It was the month before the presidential election. So, you know, I, I work in um, I work in elections administration. So I was like, I'm just going to put all of this personal stuff in a box and deal with it after Hillary Clinton is president. <laughs> and then that happened. <laughs> so, and so then I was like, oh my gosh, do I even believe what I'm doing? So I was this really, really, I was a wreck. I like totally non-functional. And up to that point, I, and I was also, I'm also, I was a, you know, formal like leader at work and had trouble sort of navigating, like being a person at work in a position of authority with people reporting to me. And the way I kind of handled that prior to that was like, I'm just going to kind of be a, a robot and sort of leave my personal stuff at the door. But at that time, I was just like such a mess that I couldn't, I just couldn't do that. So I, I let um, some people I was close to in and sort of what was going on with me. I was like, look, I'm going to be a little bit of a mess for a while and I need your help to keep things going while I'm just not going to be at my best. Um, and I had to do that because they didn't have any other, I was just like so non-functional at the time. But what I learned as a result of that was, uh, particularly my my deputy, letting her in and what was going on with me and letting her help was uh, such a, she. it was like a gift for her. She got to like help me and she really valued that. I'm not fortunate that I had that kind of relationship and somebody who could help like that and who responded with kindness and, and passion at work. But um, that was really eye-opening to me. But I, I had never really thought about before that like me being vulnerable would be a benefit to the person that I was being vulnerable with. Um, and it really changed the way that I relate to people at work and elsewhere in my life. But, so if you can do it, I recommend it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so in, in some, that kind of brings up the question of roles we have and how uh, we relate to other people in our role and appropriate boundaries and things like that. And um, if you're in a role, uh, like say in, in my position, uh, I, I'm not, um, it, it's my role to, well, <coughs> Uh, you know, uh, take take care of folks. And um, it would not be appropriate for me to come and do this Dharma talk and say, oh, I've got so many problems this week, you know, can you guys give me some advice? I mean, that would be a bit of an abdication of the rule. On the other hand, you know, the day is going to come when I'm really going to need you guys. And <laughs> probably I'm going to have to ask for your help and you may need to uh, take care of me. And I suppose that would be kind of a, kind of a gift, as you say. And... Uh, um, we we need to be honest about those things too. So yeah, that kind of kind of gets me. Thanks for that story, uh, Leslie. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks for your talk, Ted, and for everybody that has commented. When you were talking about your family and how it's this kind of widespread, incongruous group of people that are all part of your love. People, yeah. I thought about my family and how grateful I am to have my kids close and grandkids and all that. But what I realized is, um, well, to backtrack a little bit, there's a saying that many of us have used, and you hear a lot of these, you find your tribe, right? Mm -hmm. I have an issue with that because the appropriation of the word tribe and because tribal thinking is one that's really um, 
spite and and exclusive of people who are not of the tribe. And I've looked for the right word to use instead of that. And your talk made me think about that. And um, interestingly, mentioning Hillary Clinton, um, the idea of village. And I realized that uh, we've started saying that in our family because my one daughter is a single mom and going to school and working full time. She has, you know, a lot on her plate. And I hope a lot because I'm her mom and I'm here and I get to But she has a village of people. I mean, she has her sister and her sister's husband. And she has her best friend who lives in Philadelphia that she's been friends with since, you know, since she started college in 15 years, he flies out sometimes to visit and he's like an uncle. And I, I mean, there's this whole group of people and we call it the village, you know, that um, Ivy's village or Henry's village, the children, but it's really our village. And I like that term because it seems to be so inclusive. It's kind of like Sangha or tribe or community, but it's a little bit different because everybody kind of has their role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that, that that idea that in a village, if someone needs help, even someone in a role that doesn't usually need help, others will step in and, and help. And I really like that idea. And um, I feel really grateful that I have, you know, more than one village mm-hmm. in my life, even though they kind of all are the same in a lot of ways. So um, I appreciate you talking about that and me, you know, being able to kind of look at that and be really grateful that of the villages in my life. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea of a village. And interesting that you had mentioned uh, that you mentioned tribalism, uh, because there's a uh, part of this article. Uh, train yourself to always show up that I didn't talk about, uh, which was that there's a second type of person who will walk the other way. And those are people who have been ostracized from the community because sometimes people do get ostracized. They get thrown out because they've done something so terrible. They've damaged the community. But for this ritual, these ostracized people can come back and walk the other way. And uh, she said, the author of the article said, this is breathtaking. The ancient rabbis ask us to imagine a society in which no person is disposable, even those who have hurt us, even those with views antithetical to ours, must be seen in their humanity and held with curiosity and care. Okay. Well, I think maybe this would be a good place to stop.